0: Now, here's your host, Joe
1: Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is the diesel laptop story with my friend, Tyler Robertson. How's it going, Tyler? Hey, I'm just excited to be on the Logistics of Logistics. So thank you very much for getting me on here. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You're too kind. So (laughs) Tyler, please introduce yourself and your company and where you're at today.
0: Yeah, I'm the CEO and founder of a company called Diesel Laptops. And we basically are in the efficiency business of helping everyone that runs trucks. When they break down, we know what's going on and we know how to help these people fix these things. And we do a lot of things in that regard. And yeah, so Diesel Laptops, seven years ago, it was seven years in March when I started this job in my garage, dining room table, no investment money, no nothing. But now we got over 200 employees. We'll do a little north of 65 million in revenue this year and we're still growing 40% year over year. So it's, it's, been, a, it's been a wild and crazy ride through this point and the future's looking even brighter.
1: Very nice. So I know some VCs who want to get in on this in the seed round for sixty percent of your company. <laughs> I, you know, I get those calls all the time,
0: and I used to take those calls, and then I realized this is a waste of my time. I need to focus on my business. And
1: yes, yes, yes. So we've been lucky. So it's funny. I've been connected to you on LinkedIn for a while, and I kind of you post a lot, so I see different things you post. And every once in a while, I think oh, I should have him on my podcast. But then I was like, "Oh, he makes laptops. I don't know some diesel laptops." I was never really clear on it, and then, and I don't know if I, when I sent you a note, sometimes I send a note, and then people like yourself answer yeah. like two years later. Yeah, I'd like to be on your podcast, <laughs> but um, I, I I remember looking at your stuff and not being clear on what your business was. And uh, when we we're just prepping for a few minutes, uh, we talked about it, but. We'll get back to that in a minute. Before we go there, tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Give us some career highlights before you started diesel laptops.
0: Yeah, I mean, I grew up in an entrepreneur family. So my great grandfather started a business in northern Minnesota, which is where I grew up. Uh, my grandfather really grew it from very small to to very big. And what kind of biz? Yeah, yeah, they're in the ready mix and gravel pit business. So mixer That's cement. Mixer. Hey, cement is like flour to bread, right? So cement's the powder concrete's the, the finished product. It, it's been a thing in my family for generations, but yeah, that's, that's the business up there. They probably have 70% of the market share up there and they, they do a tremendous job, but I got me around. I mean, I remember driving excavators and bulldozers, you know, before I could probably even see over the steering wheel. And that's just kind of how I grew up in that, in that part of the world. Did you work in the business? My dad made me <laughs> like it wasn't a choice. I, I still remember it was like seventh grade just ended. My dad came home, threw me a pair of work gloves and was like, hey, man, you're out of grade school. You're either in school or working the rest of your life. Get used to it. Come to work with me tomorrow. I mean, I, I hated it at the time, but it really instilled a, a great work ethic in me. And it really motivated me to go to college and get a degree so I could, I could go you know do some things in life.
1: Where'd you study? Where'd you go to school? Yeah,
0: well, ironically, I got kicked out of school. So I went out to New York for computer engineering. And apparently, if you don't go to class and you don't pass tests, they kick you out of school. So that was an expensive lesson I learned in my, my early 20s.
1: Yeah, yeah, that happens. It's funny, I feel like college is sometimes wasted on young people.
0: Well, I'll, I'll tell you what, it ended up being the best thing ever because I had to go home, kind of chuck between my legs. My dad's like, well, I got a job for you. And my fam, my dad, the entrepreneur, uh, him and his brothers, they bought a truck dealership. So that's how I got involved in the whole truck repair truck side of it. So I look back in hindsight, getting kicked out of the college is one of the best things that happened to me because it, it led up to the, you know, this moment that I'm living now.
1: So right out of school, right after you uh, didn't graduate, <laughs> you, yes. uh, you went off to the truck dealership. What were you doing there and how long were you there?
0: Man, it started with just, hey, we're building the building, you're blue collar labor, right? So I was like literally manual labor, help them build the thing. Then the building got up and they needed help getting the servers and computers set up. I had a bag, strong background, so I did that. Then they had to get their software management system installed. So I did that. And then they need help with purchasing and repair. Now, my family knew nothing about a truck dealership. We were learning on the fly. I joke if there's a hundred ways to lose money owning a truck dealership, we found 101 of them. And we had to, <laughs> we had to figure it out. And when you do that, you start looking at problems and having to solve problems just nonstop. And, and you're trying to figure things out. Nobody in my family knew, you know, they ended up having a you know, pretty good exit from that whole thing, but I love that business. I wanted to stay in the truck repair dealership world. And my, after the, my family sold it, I stayed with them. And then, uh, then I probably got fired a year later for my first professional employer. That wasn't my family. So, and which in hindsight, it didn't been a great thing again, because it caused me to move to South Carolina where, where I really learned to cut my teeth and met some great people. Why'd you move to South Carolina? Yeah. So I I got fired and I I put my job on uh, my resume on the internet and I didn't want to go back and work for my family. I want to do my own thing. And a headhunter found me and he he flew me out to uh, Billings, Montana, New Jersey and South Carolina. And I got job offers for all three. Well, Montana was like a barren wasteland out there. No offense, just, just not my thing. New Jersey, it's, it's well, it's New Jersey. I, I really wasn't liking the vibe there. Then I go to South Carolina and I'm a Northern Minnesota guy. I fly to South Carolina. I'm like, man, this is great. It's 70 degrees out. There's no snow on the ground. This is a great opportunity for me. I love the company. I like the people. Like I'm, I'm in, let's, let's do this. And that's how I got to South Carolina. And- What were I you doing down there. there? Yeah, I was a service manager. So I, I was running a shop. So when those trucks break down, they go into a shop. I was the guy in there that was coordinating all the traffic and trying to grow revenue and improve efficiencies and, and do all those things inside the dealership world. They ended up promoting me through a path. They wanted me, I ran the parts department for a while. And these are big shops. These, this shop had, you know, 30 bays and doing hundreds of nice. thousands of dollars a month in labor. The parts department was doing million a million dollars a month in revenue. So these are big operations. And yeah. What was your gig? Yeah, it was service manager. Then they, promote, they had me go to be a parts manager. They wanted me to run the store. But then 08 hit and the store manager had to come tell me he can't retire because his life savings were gone. I remember
1: that time. That was <laughs> yeah. a difficult. I was an automotive guy when everything started going bankrupt. And not everyone got that bailout. The little company that I was hoping to buy someday went, went bye-bye. <laughs> so.
0: Yeah. So they ended up, ironically, their IT and their, their IT manager retired. Their marketing person quit. So I called the owner up and I'm like, hey. I know you think I'm like a parts guy or a service guy, but I'm really better at this whole IT and marketing thing. That's my background. That's my passion. Give me a shot. I'll do both jobs for the price of one. And he said, okay, but you got to move to Columbia, South Carolina. So I had to move 120 miles north with, uh, with my wife and uh, uh, you know, and start o- kind of start over down here in Columbia. And I did that for a couple of years before quitting on my own to go do diesel laptops.
1: So w- what hole did you see in the market when you said, hey, I'm going to start a company what were you seeing? I mean, you must have seen some, some gap that wasn't being served.
0: Well, to be honest, I did it for beer money at first, right? So when you work in the service side, and you, you got to, everyone needs to understand most service shops, they're booked up for days or weeks at dealerships trying to get trucks. in. So they this don't is have to get trucks in and out. To get trucks in and out. They, they just don't have enough resources, enough people and time to do it. So I was like, not liking that. I'm like, man, we got to treat our customers better. Else they're never going to come back to us when times aren't good.
1: Well, yeah, a truck, a, a truck sitting in a bay or sitting in a parking lot waiting to be worked on is a truck that's not moving down the road and getting a driver paid and making a carrier some money.
0: So the irony is repair shops like that. They like having a two or three backlog because they can be efficient. Right, and they can manage the their busy. time. Yeah. Yes, yes. So I said, I don't like that. It's upsetting customers. So when customers would come in, I had either myself or, this, or the foreman, we would go out to the truck with the laptop, hook it up and tell the customers, oh, this is no big deal. Come back in a week or no, you need to leave it here. We'd give them some guidance on what to do. And ironically, the customers, they're like, well, how do I buy that software? So I don't even have to come to you. And we would say, no, you can't have it. This is why you have to come to me because I'm the dealer. Only I can have this. And customers didn't like it. The, 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 the dealerships did. Um, and then I got promoted to the parts management side. So now I'm on the other side of the aisle at the dealership, same building, same rooftop, but now we report to someone different. And his mentality is, Tyler, if you can make any margin at all, I don't care if it's a truck part, oil, a cheeseburger, a telephone or whatever, buy it, mark it up, sell it, make our margin. That's how we make money in this side of the business. So I'm like, cool. So I start selling software to shop owners and it was a disaster because I just sold a piece of software to a 55, 60-year-old shop owner, and he's got to get a physical hardware to connect to the truck, install Bluetooth drivers and update firmware. (laughs) He doesn't know, right? He just knows how to fix trucks. So it quickly pivoted into me buying the pieces from the company I work for. I'd buy a laptop on the side at home. I'd put all the things together and I'd resell the package back to the company I work for and they would just sell it, up and sell it to the customer. So it was like a win, win, win for everybody. And that's how it got started. And through that process, you start to find out customers have more issues and more problems and more things. And I just kind of started selling them. And actually eBay was the first place I started selling on my own. So my company really started on eBay. So if, if, if I wanted to work on a truck and everything's electronic
1: now, everything's got a, a code to it. So I need diagnostic tools, right?
0: You need, four th- you need four things, really. We call it a four-piece puzzle. So yeah, you, you need a tool to connect to the vehicle to actually tell you what it's doing. And there's all kinds of solutions in the marketplace at different price points. Right. Very few tools will tell you the code and actually tell you how to fix it or give you the remove and replace instructions or give you the wiring diagram or all this other piece. So the tool connects, it just plugs in somewhere, right? Plugs into the diagnostic port and tells you what's wrong. So we had to build all of our, we built, we, we make our own tools. We sell third-party tools, but we built all of our own repair information to connect the two. So
1: what are those four pieces? Tools the tool that I plug in. So that's the plug. What's the second one?
0: Yep. Training. Most customers don't know how to properly diagnose a truck. So for people that listen to this that own trucks and they're wondering why they have a whole bunch of parts on their repair order that they get from that, that dealer or that repair shop, it's cause they don't know. And they do what I call the parts cannon.
1: So we, I plug that into the, into the truck and it gives me some code. It says, you know, something, and then I go, oh, okay, great. It's got me code. I don't know what that code means. <laughs> so I need to be trained on what that means and what I, what parts I need to replace or to recalibrate.
0: Yeah. The vast majority of technicians we run across, I, I, I say this, I don't want to say it's in a mean way to upset a bunch of people, but they do not have the proper training and education on how to deal with today's complex electronics systems on, on vehicles. So we, we have training centers across the U S where people can come into and actually learn those things. Right.
1: So training is the second thing tools. The first, what's the third,
0: the repair information was the second one, the training is oh, okay. the third. And then the fourth one is no matter how much, you know, and how much you study, I, it's like for the older people listening here, it's like, who wants to be a millionaire? You need to phone a friend. You need to, you need to call that expert. So we have a call center staff with diesel techs. And all they do all day long, tens of thousands of calls, hundreds of thousands of calls a year, just helping people remotely. We remote right into their computer, onto their phone, and we're helping them solve their problems.
1: Yeah. And when we before we hit record today, we were just talking about in the olden days, <laughs> you could lift up the, the hood of the car and there, everything was, or a truck, and everything wasn't electronic. It was a mechanical thing, right? Yep. And over time, as we get these trucks, got more and more complex, more and more complicated, there are kind of, and it used to be able to be a mechanic, even at a dealership or at a gas station, we used to have gas stations just have mechanics. And you kind of learn that on the job. There is no more what I'll call backyard mechanics anymore, it
0: seems, because it's gotten too tough. It is. It's really difficult and there's no opportunity for training. So if you right. own an independent shop, there's not like you can call your local Freightliner dealer and be like, hey, train me how to fix your stuff. That, that's not something that's offered in a marketplace. So there's a knowledge gap skill. There's a technology gap skill. And there's a diagnostic skill. And that's all the gaps we're trying to fill.
1: Yeah. And I'll go off on a little tangent here for a second. So I spent much of my career in automotive. I was an automotive engineer. And when you look at a car, and trucks are not much different. If you look at a car, it's made up of five major systems. There's body. Interior, chassis, electrical, powertrain, five pieces, bicep, body, (laughs) body, interior, electrical, chassis, electrical, and powertrain. Over time, when I started my career in the 80s, everything was kind of mechanical. And then as I I became a program manager and I was managing large projects, everything started becoming electronic. And And then all of a sudden, code came in. And so, you, a lot of times you would get a black box and someone, I remember being in China and somebody handed me a box. It was from Motorola and they said, Yeah, here, uh, this is, these are, the, these are the parts that we need tested. And I was just like looking at it. I was like, What? <laughs> and it's funny because I think we all kind of understand mechanical things. We touch things all day long. We understand how to screw things in, screw things out. When you're handed a black box, I was like, Well, how do I test this? And then I call Motorola. I was like, How do I test this? They're like, Only we can test that. And it was a funny thing because you start to realize people who are in their 50s and 60s who got degrees in mechanical engineering, now they're still in mechanical engineering. They struggle with the amount of code and the amount of electronics in cars. So when the engineers and designers who are developing these vehicles struggle with it, I can't imagine how difficult it is for a mechanic who didn't participate in the development.
0: Yeah. And you find inside, I mean, I come from dealerships, but I spend a lot of time in independent shops. They the the older crowd typically are the guys saying, Man, I don't want to learn any of that stuff. Right. I get stay that. The new stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and the new guys, you know, the new ones are like, Oh yeah, computer, like, let me add it. I want to see how this thing works. So th- there's usually that divide. And the problem is too, is all that mechanical stuff has gotten so much better. I remember when I first got into this business, yeah. like a transmission had a half million mile warranty. Then they went 750. Then they went a million. the machining got better. The lubricants got better. Yes. Things just don't break like they used to even look at people. I talk to some people like, Oh, well we do a lot of brake jobs. I'm like, well, that's great. But now almost half the trucks now have, have disc brakes. They don't have, they don't have the drum brakes. And guess what? They last longer. They stop quicker. They're lighter. And they don't take as long to replace. your your business is dwindling right before your eyes. And it's that that slow, slow death. But the shops that are out there learning about after treatment, learning about electrical, learning about ADAS, learning about all these things. Wait, 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 what's ADAS? What is ADAS? Yeah, yeah, sorry, acronyms, right? So advanced driver assist systems. So if you have a new car, you know this. You have your adaptive cruise control and you get the rumble when you go over the lanes. This is just making its way into commercial trucks. So I was at a presentation that a Volvo exec did four years ago, their VN series, their over-the-road series, it was like 15% of them had these systems on it. Today, it's like 55. And you can see the trend going there. But what does that mean? Now you got radar, LIDAR, more sensors, more cameras. you got all these things. And let's face it, robots driving trucks aren't like a 50-year thing in the future. That stuff's coming as well, electrification, hydrogen. It's getting more complicated.
1: Yeah, by the way, I just had Don Burnett on from Kodiak, and they have driven a million miles of, uh, with, now they have a driver in the car, but he does, they're they're not having to do much adjustment. And what's interesting about that is when that one truck learns, since it is AI, it's every truck learns. And they're going between Dallas and Houston, which I first, I think I said it's 800 miles. I think it's really only 250 miles, (laughs) but. They don't have any wet, real weather there. It doesn't snow like your beloved Minnesota or like Michigan, where I'm at. The, the, but they do have road construction. So that is that is something that those systems have to adapt to. But a million miles is a long way. And what's interesting about that is, I say this all the time on my podcast, is if there was an accident with an autonomous truck right now, it would be front page news and there'd be commentaries. It'd be on all, all of our media for for weeks that truck didn't have a driver. How horrendous is this? Yet as we're speaking, unfortunately, humans are crashing trucks. So you don't have to get the same. I don't I don't I can't say this definitively, but it's not good enough to be as good as a good driver. You have to be better than the best driver. And that's gonna be a real challenge. So interesting times though. I mean, it's it's not it's not space age anymore, to
0: your point. <laughs> I mean, you have publicly traded companies that have billions in investments developing technologies like this, right? So, if this is not yet, yeah, this is not space age, like you said. It's it's coming. Everyone needs to decide how they're going to deal with it in their own way.
1: Tyler, someday you'll be talking to your great grandchildren, and you'll say, "Yeah, when I was young, we used to drive our own cars," and they'd be like, "Well, what if you ran a red light?" And you go, "Yeah, we did that." What if what if you sped? Yeah, we did. <laughs> like, what if you did stupid things? Oh, all the time. What if you were distracted? It will seem, I think, foreign that we would be driving our own cars
0: and crashing into each other. <laughs> I 100% agree. And even, even like, just look at automated transmissions. 10 years ago, everyone's like, no, we are not doing that. We refuse. We have to have a stick shift. And now it's hard to find a Class 8 truck and, and drivers to know how to drive a Class 8. So it it just, it goes quick. I think part of it, people realize... You know when I was young
1: we didn't have mobile phones and we were still playing with the radio and when you're trying to play with the radio and drink your soda and then shift that was a pain in the ass so it makes sense and by the way I I always remember having a, a friend and she she could put on her makeup shift and play with the radio it was it was kind of terrifying to be in her car <laughs> <laughs> like she needed an automatic.
0: <laughs> if my dad's listening to this, he's laughing right now cuz that was totally my dad with like laptop trying to go on a phone and shift and drive and
1: get rid I'm, of sur- it. I'm
0: surprised it survived.
1: Yep. So, so you saw this big opportunity. So how did how uh, so so you started selling and then you started your own company. And so when you started it was just you saying I'm going to build these and I'm going to go and I'm going to sell these to all these independent dealerships.
0: Yeah, I had a, I, you know, I had my part-time business kind of going well, and it was it was me, literally my garage dining room table. I had a wife that didn't work. I had a one-year-old and a three-year-old, and I was like, "Hey, I gotta, I gotta have a thing here that actually generates money so I can pay the mortgage bill and keep the lights on inside the house."
1: So you you guys got used to living indoors and eating every day, which is a bad thing. Don't do that to your kids.
0: <laughs> it, it, I'll tell you what, it was scorched earth there the first couple of months, and I still remember the very first day, you know, you roll out of bed working for my house. Right. So I go there and I'm doing my thing and it's lunchtime. So the wife's like, Oh, you know, come sit with me and the kids. She's like, well, how many sales you got today? And I'm like, zero, I got, I got zero today. So that's how we started out the first day. But you know, in hindsight, it's, it's looking over the long term, not the short term. And, and we've, we've made it.
1: So, so as you started to grow, did you, I take it, you got offices. You're not doing this on your kitchen table today. All 65 yeah. Yeah. People. Yeah. All, I think I'm, all I'm, 200 people aren't at your house.
0: <laughs> they're not, they're not. I, after we got to about three, that's my wife's like, no, get out of here. And there was some other good reasons we did that. But yeah, I mean, I I'm on my, I I've left a small wake of commercial property behind us. So I've been fortunate enough to sell them as we've kept growing. And that was, that was another challenge with growing. It's like you, everyone wants you to sign a long-term contract or buy a piece of property. And when your business is growing so fast, it's hard to make those types of decisions.
1: It's, it's, I imagine it's also very difficult to, as you're growing, to say, I'm going to slow my growth down so I can buy a building.
0: <laughs> every every time I was like, I'm going to buy a bigger place with more property and I'll build on it. And then we'd oh grow it. I'd be like, let's make it four or five years. We'd make it six months. And I'm like, okay, I don't have time to build a building. We got to go find something bigger. Let's go do it. And let's hopefully go sell this place we just had. So- I've ironically have done. I just talked to my commercial agent. So we just closed another piece of property. He's like, he's like, I Tyler, saw you're that on ne- LinkedIn. Yeah, you're <laughs> my number one customer over the last three years. So I'm like, I don't want to be. Like, I'm not trying to. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, he appreciates the commission checks. I'm sure.
1: Yeah, it's like being the best. Of, it's like being your best patient for your doctor. You're like yeah. enough already. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. hundred percent.
1: So you know, you had a you, you had this entrepreneurial background with your family, and so you saw that the way your parents and grandparents did, and your aunts and uncles. You never, you said you didn't take any VC money. Was there ever, was that ever part of your mindset? Like I'll, I'll go get partners to help this grow or did you always have this idea that this is my show and I don't want?
0: It was never that. I was like, well, one, i even before I did this, people understand I was very fiscally conservative. So I worked for somebody else. My wife didn't work, but I mean, our, we had no debt and our house was dang near paid off. And I had I had cash sitting there. So I was in a really good spot. And truthfully, I still run the company the same way. We, we have no debt, we have a lot of cash and we just, I've never seen a company go bankrupt yet that had cash in the bank, right? So I'm, I'm very cautious in that regard and I didn't really need it. I, I didn't have these big ambitions or these big plans the first couple of years. I was just trying to go do a thing and more and more business kind of kept coming in and you're just kind of trying to keep your feet underneath you and, and keep rolling with it. Um, and truthfully, at that point, I wouldn't even know how to raise VC money. I, don't, I didn't know what a pitch right, deck right. was or I wouldn't even know where to go if I wanted to do that stuff.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because we were talking about this before we hit record. Is Nate Schutz over at Freight Waves is doing something with bootstrappers, and I did talk to him. He hasn't been on my podcast yet, but we did talk. And I started looking up. It's like it's like less than one percent of startups ever get BC money, and then very few ever get all the way to the end, you know, where they take it public. But even very few get past the the A round. So it is not like a, I, and I, and I think what the reason I I bring that up is I think we're so used to seeing the big splash where like somebody becomes a billionaire in like in like three years and you go well yeah that seems like the great way to go but those are so rare those are the one and not the one in a million they they are one in a billion and I think it kind of becomes. The new normal, like well, that's what we see. That's what we think a startup is. But the average startup isn't that. It's more like yours.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I tell people this. I, I took me a thousand dollars to start diesel laptops. That was it, and we've been bootstrapping the whole thing up ever since then, right? So, it, it's definitely a doable, possible thing. And furthermore, it really sucks part of the time because you find out you have no cash to pay taxes and grow and do these things. But you work through it. And now I'm like, man. Now I'm in a great place. Now I'm, a, I'm profitable. I got cash in the bank, and i own I own this thing. I can go do what I want to do and make my decisions, and I'm not beholden to stockholders or private equity guys that all they're looking for an exit, right? At the end of the day,
1: I mentioned uh, I mentioned to you there's that saying that you can either be rich or you can be the king. So if you take the VC money, you can be rich, but you don't get to be the king anymore. Uh, that, that, wrong way to say. It. I'm not. I don't want to vilify VCs or say that all of a sudden they're the boss, but but you've done both now. <laughs> Well, I, actually, but the queen's probably still in charge.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've had, I've had people, you know, when I, when I was really kind of going there and you start hitting like the Inc. 500 list and Inc. 5000 list and fastest growing, that's when the calls start happening with the, you know, financial people, the VCs, all these guys. And I, I took some of those calls because I was kind of like, oh, I'm curious, I'm honored, you know, like excited. You don't understand that world.
1: You're the bell of the ball for a little while.
0: <laughs> I, yeah, we, we probably still are. But,
1: yeah, exactly. But, you know,
0: and I, I I, look at that now and I'm like, I mean, I people have offered me up to 100 million and I have passed it up. And I'm like, I, I I can get that time number anytime I want. But I think we have a bigger mission and we have a bigger opportunity at Diesel Laptops to go create a much po- more positive impact in our industry. So it's really quickly migrated for me from just building something to put a roof over my head, to building a business, to creating a bigger business that can scale, to now, hey, let's go change an industry. We think we can go do these things. Yeah.
1: I I don't know this. Um, You've done really well. And who who knows? Maybe you would know what to do. But right now, if I gave you that much money, you might say, God, I've always done it this way. And now all of a sudden, I can make a really big mistake with somebody else's money. (laughs) that's
0: That's another risk of that, right? I mean, and yeah, I mean, that's the great thing about being bootstrapped is literally every penny counts. You don't, you you have to really think through things. And I I think I've seen that a lot of times too. People get this VC money, they kind of blow through it and they're like, okay, it didn't turn out like we thought now we need to raise more money. I'm like, man, this is a horrible strategy. You just throw money at the wall.
1: I worked for a VC backed company. And I I remember it was out Mountain View and I always remember seeing like Look at our benefits. I'm like, I've never had benefits like this. And I remember, like, you know, it was, it it just seemed like everything was very expensive. And I'm I'm from automotive business, which is a little more cost conscious, and not, not out there, man. It was like money, money, money. Anyway, so you started to allude to something about, you know, maybe a bigger mission here. So, what, what, what is that bigger mission when it comes to this industry?
0: Yeah. Well. The repair process sucks. So anyone that has ever listened to your podcast, ever had a truck broken down, they already know this. It's, it's hard to find a place. Shops typically don't diagnose things, right? They have to try to source parts and things are on back order. And you got dwell time. And again, the parts cannon, we see that all the time. I got a code. I'm a part what's a part cannon. Yeah. So this happens every day in, in basically every repair shop across the country. I have a problem with this truck. I'm not sure what it is. I'm going to start throwing parts at it. And one of them will eventually fix it. And then they, then they finally, Oh my God, that's an
1: expensive way to do biz.
0: (laughs) It it happens all the time. Literally. I, I worked at a dealership with dealer certified technicians. It happened to us. I wouldn't say every day, but it happened quite a bit. And it goes back to people don't know how to properly diagnose things. It's a lack of training, knowledge, and experience that lead up to those things. And if you look at the truck breakdown procedure today, it's horrible. It's all reactive. And you know this, everyone's listening to this. and do even know it's a car. The way it works today is I'm driving my vehicle. It breaks down. I bring it somewhere. Diagnostics repair happen. And then I get my truck back or my equipment back. And that process is horrible because as you said earlier, I don't know how to deal with the loads, my driver, when's it going to be done? When can you guys work on it? All this unknown certainty that causes these ripple effects. And it's changing now. So let me
1: ask this. I, again, I'm coming uh, at this from a uh... Real amateur perspective. So let's just say uh, I own some trucks and I bought some relatively new ones. They're not brand new because I don't think I can even get a brand new truck right now. So I bought some used ones, and I'm doing the scheduled maintenance at my local dealer, right? And then I'm on my guys are on the road, and next time they need the, they need servicing, aren't I doing it at my local? Or is there a lot of uh, a lot of things that I didn't plan for that happen on the road?
0: yeah so a good comparison is the u.S. market versus European market. in the u.S market, say eighty percent of the repairs are breakdown events, 20 percent are planned maintenance. Oh, Europe, no. it's like the complete opposite. So a lot of the breakdowns that happen in the United States are unplanned. My check engine light went on, my tire blew. This thing's not working, and it's every conversation I've had with fleets. They're typically not super experts on maintenance and repair. They're good at moving freight from point A to B. And it's like that, that costing side of those, those tor- those tools that deliver the packages and the freight. It's almost like an afterthought. And they're doing the best they can with oil changes and whatnot. But technology's changing all of that. And it's already started to happen for people that know this, that own Teslas and some of the more current cars is data's coming off the vehicles. And what people need to understand is before a check engine light comes on, there's a sensor in the background. That's changing. And that check engine light doesn't come on until that sensor hits a certain yeah, threshold, right? That's a,
1: that's a binary event, right? It's either on or it's off.
0: But what if you could monitor the data on vehicles as they're going down the road and know if that value is heading in the wrong direction? Right, And you predictive, right? So if you can get predictive, now all of a sudden you know like, okay, I'm gonna have a problem tomorrow or next week. Now I can get ahead of it and I can plan for the truck to be down and where it's gonna be and make sure I have parts there and make sure there's a bay open for me to get into. You said to me when we were prepping that I thought I started a laptop company, but
1: I started a data company. So that's what you're alluding to. So elaborate on that a little bit.
0: Yeah. It's 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 all about data, right? So there's data coming off the vehicles. It's It's a closed loop. You need to know what's happening before the vehicle breaks down. You need to know what happened when the vehicle broke down and you need to know what fixed it. And if you can connect all those dots, you start making this great circle that just gets tighter and tighter and quicker and quicker in the repair process. So that's what we're doing is we're trying to fit into that piece and really go out there to market and make that happen. And there's a lot of pieces that have to fall into place in order to make that happen. But I can tell you all this money I make selling diagnostic tools, I 100% invest it right back into into that idea that we can actually make this a better place, eliminate downtime, improve uptime. And get our product from point A to B quicker. So if I can if so like getting back to if I own some trucks and I've got, is it your diagnostics or I'm just you how do your diagnostics go into my truck? Yep. So today we have, we need partners to make all this work, right? So first number one is you need to get clean data off trucks. I can tell people listening to this, if they're running Geotab or SamSara or any of these guys, we are not getting all the information we need to do diagnostics and predictive properly. They're focused on what they do well they're not focused on diagnostics and it's not their fault. They just, that's not their yep. business. So we've had to come up with our own hardware and work with some other companies to do that. Then you need to get the data off and standardize it. So if it's a Peterbilt or a Freightliner or a Mac or a Volvo, it all looks the same when it hits an AI machine learning tool. And we work with a couple of companies in that space. And then the day, someone needs to look at that stuff because these machine learn, these tools I and mean, software tell people like you may have a problem. This things might happen. Well, all the repair information that exists in the world is built in reactive. Does it work with proactive right. model? So we've had to go through those iterations too. So I guess what I'm telling people today is yes, if they want to learn about predictive analytics and diagnostics, we're, we're not like in a mature environment where this thing is working 100%, but I can tell you with certainty, it does work and the path is definitely there and it's coming fast.
1: So you, you have your own, you partner with somebody and you have your own diagnostic system on there. Now, does that, does that transmit in back to, a system in real time, or do you have to pull it off the truck and, put, and plug it in?
0: Yep. So first gen of our devices, to, we have to have a mobile device in the cab to pull data off the device we plug yep. in to the phone or tablet and into the cloud. I can tell you there's a device coming out this year that just plug it in. It goes right to the cloud. Nobody right. has to do anything. So it's, just, it's all this generational stuff. And as we're doing this, we're constantly trying to figure out, well, what things should we look at on the truck and what's really important and what's going to improve the efficiency for that fleet?
1: Well, and so we're not so far away from me getting in my truck, let's just say I've, I've got a few trucks and I get in it and you guys could communicate with me, Joe, you, you want to drive that truck 800 miles round trip tomorrow.
0: 100%. That is
1: going to break down before you go. Don't get in that car because it's a lot easier to get it fixed and you, you stay home in your own bed overnight and it's getting fixed and then we move it later than to get on the road and find myself stuck 400 miles from home. Looking for somebody to fix my truck.
0: Yeah, and not only that, but even when it's not predictive, it's reactive. We still have a device on the vehicle, which means we can remote in and see what's happening and run commands remotely to test components and do things without even being there. So it really right. changes the game on how this whole repair maintenance world works in the commercial truck space.
1: Yeah, you know, it it reminds me, God, in the olden days, you get in your car and you be driving, you go, "Does this feel funny? Does it feel like I got a flat tire?" And now you get in a newer car, and it says, "Hey, your left rear tire is a little low." And you yep. you're not you're not guessing at that point, and I'm not wondering because you hear thud thud thud. You're like, "Which one is that? Is the car leaning to the left? Leaning to the right?" <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And by the way, we are all struggling in this business to to uh, be on time and in full. We all want to be uh, responsible, but we also want to do a better job for our drivers and you know we we all know that even the best best attempts at making the driver's life better it's not always good and that's why we're losing drivers if you can and, and stranding them on the road with 2 days of repair that's not the good way to uh, engender loyalty or happiness in, the, in their lives
0: yeah, I I feel the I, I I really feel we're sitting here in that five to ten year span, and it's call centers like ours that are managing trucks and monitoring them driving down the road and just getting ahead of the problem and and helping everyone through situations. Exactly what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, yeah. So you started as a really a very much a hardware company, and to some extent you still are because you got your laptops and you got your your diagnostic tool going on there. It's all hardware, but more and more it is going to the cloud for analysis and. You know, I say this all the time on my podcast, we start off wanting to know X, Y, and Z. And before you know it, it's A, B, C, all the the entire alphabet is what we're learning. The insights just get better and better and better. And it doesn't take long when you've got a, a lot of numbers like you do.
0: Yeah. And it's you said it exactly right. I mean, we lead with hardware today. Where we lead tomorrow is with solutions. And we let hardware backfill whatever that client's solutions are with the right fit for their needs and budget. But that's, that's where we're going. And then the big missing piece we hadn't talked about is truck parts. There's $34 billion a year sold in truck parts. Nobody seems to have any stock of any kind of part anymore and trucks are broke down for months at a time. We just had the EPA have to give emergency emergency ruling to do factory approved emission deletes in order to get trucks going again. So we believe we can connect actual the part number, price and availability all the way back to, hey, you got this fault code. Here's your price and availability on that part to fix your problem. So it's it's tying all that in and making it all happen easy. That gets
1: to that supply and demand. And, you know, we, you know, <laughs> there's a, somebody was, a, I forgot who had their LinkedIn profiles that inventory is everything. And I was like, what do they mean by that? And then I thought about it. I was like, yeah, kind is. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Where is my inventory?
0: We talk about here all the time. I'm we're like, we're pretty sure databases rule the world now at this point, because everything goes back to a database somewhere of something and everything we do.
1: But you know it's interesting. I say this all the time. I go to a warehouse, I visit a warehouse, and somebody gives me a report and it's got 30 columns on it and a hundred rows. And that that here's our data, here's our metrics. And I always look that that to me, I, I'm not smart enough to look at 30 columns and say whether things are going well. So the, the we do have the ability to pump out tons of metrics. And I always joke: don't give me metrics, give me KPIs. Only the best metrics grow up to be KPIs. Give me those KPIs that tell me what I need to do with my truck or what to do with
0: my warehouse. I don't want a million. Just tell me what to do. Don't make me interpret. (laughs) You're hitting the nail on the head. We always say here, we need to make this super easy and simple for people to use. If we can make it super simple and easy and solve a problem, like we're golden. We'll we'll be around for a long time.
1: I remember a long time ago, still working in engineering. And I remember somebody sent an email to... um, my boss and the boss was showing. He was looking at. It. He goes, "Don't ever send me in this." He, I didn't send it. So I, he goes, "I got all this data, and now I have to go through it. I have to interpret it. I have to figure out what am I supposed to be seeing here? What is the what is the message that they?" He goes, "They could have put two bullet points in here and say <laughs> what what you should see in here." Right? Here's the. And I used to say when I managed a little three PL, don't send them a report. Tell them interpret the data. You can attach the Excel spreadsheet, but don't make them analyze. You already did that. That's why you're getting paid. And it's the same thing here. Tell me what I need to do. Tell me not to get out of my. Say, Joe, get out of that truck. Stay home today. Get your truck fixed.
0: (laughs) I tell my employees all the time, look, if it takes you more than a paragraph or two to explain to me what's going on in the email, (laughs) we're using the wrong medium. Like Book a call. Like I'm not going to read it. I don't have time to deal with this.
1: There was an old, old vice president at Chrysler and we all answered to him and wonderful man. And I remember him saying, I look at all these emails, I get hundreds of them. And he goes, and I look at the ones that I know you know, I have to look at. He goes, but I don't scroll.
0: <laughs> I will not scroll. He goes, yep. if you make me scroll, your message is lost. <laughs> yeah. 100%. I actually remember reading an article about Elon Musk and it was like the the one email you don't want to ever get from Elon Musk. And what it was, was like a question mark email. Like you never wanted to get that from the CEO. That's the one character. That's the F you, Elon. <laughs> like that's the one you don't want to see from, from your CEO. So let's talk about a
1: little bit about the growth of your company. So as you grew, uh, you talked about mo- having to move from building to building. Your wife kicked you out of, the, out of the original location. So talk about the growth and kind of some of the lessons you learned and some of the inflection points and what you learned from those.
0: Yeah. So I can tell you like in 2019 ish, we kind of hit a plateau and I, I think every company hits a plateau eventually. And the problem ended up being me. So I I was the one holding back and I wasn't given control up on things. And, and no one
1: could fire you. That was the problem.
0: Yeah. That was, no one was telling me either. Right. No <laughs> one's like, you're the problem. Right. No one tells, tells the CEO boss, the founder that, but yeah, it was me. And I, I, we brought in a consulting company and I'd always kind of been like anti-consulting companies, but I brought him in I can tell you, man, it's, it's one of the best things I ever did. I mean, he he really got us, they really got us focused on where are the problems, where are the things, why aren't things moving. And it was things I wasn't thinking about and I should have been thinking about. I was getting too caught up in just working in the business, not on the business. And, you know, now I I very I I know very little on a day-to-day that goes on down there. And we're not even worried about quarter two, we're not worried about quarter three. We're talking about how we get in quarter four good and what's going on in 2023 and 24. I mean, that's that's where we focus our attention now. And we've hired a lot of great people and that's that's a tough thing to do as a founder CEO is go pay people more than you pay yourself and bring them in there and trust that they're going to do a great job. But it's, it's things you have to do to get to that next that next level of your business.
1: Yeah, well, I think with the two things you just said there is like, I'm bringing in people who make more than me. And also that you brought a consultant in and they pointed some things out and you recognized it was you. You know, you've had a lot of success. So it may be you say, look, I, I'm not really insecure about the deal here. I know I've just built a great company. I don't feel really bad about what, you know, what my performance. So maybe you were open to it. I think what's harder is when you're young and you, you're trying to get, get things done and you have that insecurity. And then somebody says, Hey, Hey dummy, do it this way. And that's where I always think like, as I've gotten older, I feel like I'm I'm a little more secure in myself and I'm able to say, okay, let the ego go <laughs> be humble also I think on the way you get some bumps and bruises, you go, you know, I might not know everything.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I I had to learn, I had to learn to like check my ego at the door. And and by the way, my wife does a great job making sure my ego doesn't doesn't get out of (laughs) control here. So, but yeah, you you have to do that. I mean, that was the big thing. And it it was hard for me to give up control and not know what's going on in certain things. But at the end of the day, I just knew my company will never get to where it can be. If I'm the one controlling all these things, I got to give up control. Right. So you mentioned this idea, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs have heard it, not necessarily applied it.
1: It's the idea. And I don't even think it just applies to entrepreneurs. I think it applies to a lot of managers, which is work on the business, not in the business. Elaborate on that for me.
0: Yeah. I mean, I tell all our managers, the best thing you can do is work yourself out of a job. Like if you get your department running so great, you don't even need to be there that is perfect. I know your team's executing. I will find a new place for you. Don't, don't worry about that. You'll be a star. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's the problem though, is people, especially founder CEOs, they, they know their thing, right? So say you're great making pizzas and I'm an owner. I'm going to keep making my pizzas. I know how to do that. Customers love them. This is my key to my success. And then you get the other guy that makes great pizzas as well. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to teach somebody else how to make pizzas. And I'm going to go open a second restaurant and I'm going to go figure out a franchise this. And I'm going to go figure out to grow my business and make more profit and get growth. But they're, they're worried about the bigger things, which they should be. Right. And that's really the difference. And depending on what your industry in, people get caught at certain levels all the time and they need to look themselves in the mirror. It's not their employees. It's not their other things or competitors, the market conditions. It's 99% of the time it's, it's them. That's, that's causing them to be stuck where they're stuck interesting interesting yeah it's it's uh no it's not it's not easy to
1: uh, i mean it's intellectually i think we get that it's just i think emotionally it's it's a hard it's a hard pill to swallow and i always say like when you own a business like you do you're the one who's most interested in the money you're the one who it's your mission it's your product to some extent even though other people have shaped it and you're probably the best sales guy for a long time you're all three of those things and then as time goes on you go you know what, I better get a financial guy, I better get a sales guy who's better than me. And uh, and and letting go and being the boss is uh, not always easy, I imagine.
0: You're absolutely right. And I made a lot of mistakes. I, I didn't bring in an HR person when I should have. And all of a sudden we got a poor culture going on. We're hiring the wrong people with the wrong jobs. And my HR person's embezzling money from me, right? <laughs> I, I didn't bring in IT security when we should have. And, you know, Ugh. some Russian guys hacking our Amazon account stealing 40 or 50 grand. So it, it's all those things that you, oh. you got to... You got to have, I mean, they're expensive lessons as you go, but they're, you know, to me, they're important lessons. I just, I know I'm not going to repeat them. And I, I've, what I've figured out now is every time I go hire great talent and it costs me a lot of money, the company makes more money and I make more money. So I'm like, Hey, this, this works. Let's keep, let's keep doing this. And it, it gets tough. I remember a year ago we sat in that, the boardroom and we're like, and we're not, you know, we're not a huge billion dollar company. And we're saying, Hey, if we really want to do this thing, we got to add a million dollars to payroll. And you're like, wow, that's, that's a lot of money. <laughs> Are you sure? I'm like, well, you know, yeah, let's, it's worth, it's worth, it's worth doing and let's, let's go do it. I don't have to answer to shareholders. I don't need to show certain EBITDAs. I, I can control this thing and, and do it the way we want to do it. And not everything you do works, but you know, a lot of them do if you put enough plan of forethought into it.
1: Yeah. So I want to ask you three questions. I want to know and answer them in any order you want. What's next for you, What's next for diesel laptops and what's new next for this industry that you're in, which is I'll call that repair business.
0: Yeah, I think diesel laptops, we're at the point now where we had significant revenue. We're growing fast. We're profitable. All these things. I need to figure out what's my long-term game. If my long-term game is really to go change an industry, I need to go figure out who I need to partner with. And maybe that is giving up some equity and bringing the right people in to increase my odds of succeeding in that goal. If my end game is just, hey, let's make some money and just retire here eventually, I probably won't do that. So I need to figure that stuff out both personally and as a business. And that's really the hard part is staring yourself in the mirror and being like, what do I want 10 years from now? And until you can answer that question, it's really hard to make the right the right decisions in your company. And uh, you know, to answer your question about the company stuff or the, the industry, it's exactly what I said, man. It's it's prognostic, diagnostics, and computers on things and
1: proactive uh, rather than drive. reactive.
0: Yeah, the proactive model. It's 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 coming. We're we're putting all our bets on it. I, I know it's coming. I see it coming. I already see it working, and I, I see the response we get from customers. And I, I know that's where it's going to go. So it's it's all about shortening up that repair process. I think our companies want to do it.
1: I gotta think now that you say it. I gotta think that the companies that are get real proactive about it. Are going to save money on repairs over time. They're going to have happier drivers and they're going to have happier customers. So it just seems as if the, the cream is going to rise to the top and you say, why are we successful? Because because what we're delivering here.
0: Yeah, 100%. It's not even us selling it. It's our service centers selling it, right? They need to go to their customers and say, hey, put this device in and X dollars per month and we'll let you know when there's problems and we'll make sure your maintenances are happening on time and we'll we'll do all these great things for you. And we're the company with the engine behind the scenes doing that on behalf of the repair shops out there and the fleets
1: and this is a little bit of a reach but I'll say it anyway I saw an article not so long ago it talked about our screwed up healthcare system and it said if everybody had a family doctor that they went and got a physical once per year they said that fixes a lot of things because you catch the you catch the the high cholesterol the high blood pressure before it's a heart attack you catch all these ailments when they're early. And I think the same applies to what you're talking about here is just get out in front of it and, you know, say, look, I changed those tires before it's a blowout in the wintertime in the Midwest.
0: You hit the nail on the head. That's the exact analogy we use as doctors and we call it vehicle health reports. Like if you're doing a daily vehicle inspection report, why aren't you doing a electronic one and seeing what's actually going on with all the sensors? That's probably even more important than the daily walk around. You should be doing that as a daily thing. And that's the technology we're bringing to the marketplace. Well,
1: and it also, the, the, the walk around, and I'm sure some people take it very seriously, but it, it could also get to a place where you go, and it, oh. <laughs> the, literally, I kicked the tire, it seemed good to me, right? Yep. Yeah, <laughs> everything looked good. And, and, and when you're in a hurry, you say, yeah, I just checked all the boxes, we're okay. If I have a diagnostic tool, the diagnostic tool is never going to cut corners. It's going to do its job the same way every damn day,
0: <laughs> and and it's going to send it to the cloud and it's going to compare it to every other inspection you've ever done and every other truck like yours, and every truck hauling like you. Yes, that that is that is exactly where the future is of this whole thing.
1: Yeah, and I'll throw one other thing out there. I think about this with cars, so we all think of a, you know me you everyone who's alive now who's been driving for a while we say i have to own my car yes even though i don't drive it much i drive it sits in my driveway or sits in my garage most of the time we could get to the place where you say i don't need to own a car i need to need access to a car when i want one and especially if they're autonomous it could come pick me up and take me i could have a car when i needed it i never did put gas in it i never did maintenance it was always there it was always right. I've thought about this in regards to trucking. Could we ever get to the place where there's companies that say, it's our job to keep this truck 100% and then the drivers come drive it?
0: Well, you were thinking like a CEO. So I had this CEO of (laughs) International, not the current one, before this International Truck and Engine, Navistar. He said the same thing. He goes, I would really love a model where customers don't pay the upfront costs. They just pay me per mile driven. And I'm going to take care of all the maintenance. I'm going to show their vehicle's up. They know their costs. Yeah, they may pay more per mile than they do today. But it's all going to be nice and easy for them. And they can know exactly what's going to cost them to haul routes. But it totally disrupts the current model that's going on in the industry. But it's a good
1: idea. But to some extent, don't we need a little disruption in this? You know, again, I think when we struggle to hire drivers and when we struggle to get capacity, when we struggle with, again, the lifestyle of a driver, it tells you this is just too hard. And and by the way, I always joke about it. Tyler, if you drove to my house from South Carolina to uh, Michigan and then I saw – and you called and said, hey, Joe, I'm here. I said, "Hey, uh, yeah, we'll go to lunch in like two hours. Uh, just hang out there. I'll, I'll see you in two hours. You'd be like, yeah. I'm going to punch that guy in the mouth in two hours when he comes out. And we do that to drivers every day like it's normal business. I feel like if you drove that far, I'd be like, dude, come on in. What well, Can I get you a drink? Have a seat. You
0: want to take a shower? I mean, it just seems to me like that's a haul. And those guys are doing that all the time. I mean, I can tell you, like, I'm upset when we're not answering tech support calls, like on the fourth ring. And then I see stories like you talked about all over Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm like, man, I have no idea how that industry gets away with treating people like that. Right? Because I, I would, I would refuse to do business. I, I could never, I could never handle it in a million years. You'd be punching people in the mouth. <laughs> uh, I'd be like, I'm out of here then. <laughs> yeah, I'd be, I'd be throwing it on the, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah, you didn't, you didn't download
1: it, so I dumped it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. Great. Your stuff sitting here. Like deal with it. I'm on to the next level, you know, but it, it's, it's yeah. A lot of challenges in the whole logistics industry. So before we wrap this bad boy up, tell us who's your sweet spot. Who do you guys work with? Yeah. So our sweet spot today is definitely independent shops. It's uh regional fleets, mixed fleets that have a lot of late making models. I can tell everyone, to listen to this, a lot of solutions coming to market here very soon for the traditional fleets that have one make model or two make models and kind of more traditional, uh, traditional setups, but we're, we're coming. That's, that's a thing we have our eye on pretty heavily. Yep. So you guys had heading to any of these conferences this, uh, in the near future. So uh, we actually go, we used to do like 50 conferences a year post COVID. We do like 10 or 12. So we just wrapped right. up mats and TMC and a bunch of others, but I would like to tell everyone about something coming up. That's absolutely free. So when COVID happened, we launched a virtual expo called the virtual diesel expo. So virtualdieselexpo.com, it's free for anybody that wants to attend. All the vendors that are, that are there pay for it. All the all the profit we generate goes to charity. We got Mike Rowe, Dirty Jobs this year. That's going to be our keynote speaker on there.
1: I was just talking to somebody who listens to his podcast yeah. and really likes it.
0: Yeah, we got that signed yesterday. But we have all kinds of technical talks, new technology, this, this whole predictive stuff. There's booths there, talks going on about that kind of stuff. So anyone that wants to know more about truck repair or the efficiency on the repair side, it'll be a great show. When we did that thing three years ago, we had 2,500 attendees. We'll be north of 10,000 this year pretty easy. So we're really excited to get the word out there. So when is that? Yeah, May 17th through the 19th. It's a three-day event, one-day heavy truck, one-day light-duty diesel, one-day off-highway diesel. So there's a a day in there for everybody.
1: So if you could, please give me uh, a link to that and I'll put it in the show notes so anyone who wants to click through. And I'm assuming even after that, if they're listening to this post-May, they'll be able to watch video or something of that.
0: It'll, it'll be up for about a month or so after to watch all the replays and, and all that kind of stuff. So it'll, it'll be a big thing. And we give away like $50,000 in tools and prizes and all kinds Woo. of stuff. So we're just, we give stuff away here. Everyone calls me stupid for doing it, but we love, we love doing that kind well,
1: of stuff. Well, it seems to work so far. So it, it has. I'll put that link in the show notes. I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile. And again, I've been, I've been connected to you for years on LinkedIn and I do notice you do post a lot of interesting stuff. So I'll also put a link to your website and any other links you and your marketing people give me. Perfect. We'll get them over to you. Tyler, thank you so much. I really appreciate you telling us your story. And again, I feel like this is a, a year or two past due. I really, I, I don't know if I asked you. I'll have to go back to my LinkedIn and see if I asked earlier, but I've thought about it a lot and I'm, I'm glad to finally get you on my podcast.
0: The same thing happens to me. If someone pops me up. I'm like, it's been like three years since I messaged them, but, but somebody
1: wrote me a note the other day and it said, I think this is a great idea. And I was like, who the hell is this? I look at the original message was for me is something about a blog post. I had sent them something in 2013. <laughs> he sent me a note now saying, I think I go, I don't even blog. I, I like what, write one article a, a year. I was shocked. Right. <laughs> so at
0: I, least they responded to you, right? So. <laughs> yeah,
1: as, yeah, as long as that's all I cared about. Just re- respond in the next 10 years or so. I'd be happy. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Tyler, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time.
0: Hey, no problem at all. Appreciate coming on the show and uh, you got a great thing going. Look forward to listening to more episodes. Thank you so much. And thank
1: all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward.
0: You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversation with experts in the logistics field. For more details, visit thelogisticsoflogistics.com or follow Joe Lynch on LinkedIn.